1: Surprise! Bonus episode time! And here we have another fascinating interview for you listeners. As always, my name is Rory. Welcome to the Anglo-Italian pod, and I'm joined by my very good friend
0: Adam. Hey Rory, I'm looking forward to this episode because we have got someone that's done a lot of traveling for what is due and he's learnt a lot of the game, started off at non-league got himself into birmingham city before he explored the world wasn't it so it's just fascinating
1: stories left right and center with him it is yeah without a doubt i really enjoyed this interview um it's the next in our part the next part in our series of um away from from home, home where we interview players managers who have left the comforts of home and have gone abroad to learn about football and take it all, and regale us with their stale, with their stories, and tell us about mm-hmm. where they've been, what they've done. And this 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 career was really fascinating, as you said. So the the person we're interviewing is Stuart Hall. He's a football manager who started out, as you said, in the non league, worked his way up to Birmingham City, where he was coaching the likes of Christoph Dugary in the Premier League years, mm. and then his career takes him all across Africa. He goes to well, first to India, then out to the um, Saint Vincent and the Grenadines, Zanzibar. He's in Somalia. He's in Tanzania. He's everywhere, and some of the stories, guys, that he shares about the atmospheres he saw, the games he managed, and the mm. circumstances in which he has to, had to manage under, it's genuinely fascinating. And I, I always find these like I'm I'm someone who's been lucky enough to travel, and I think if I'd ever been anywhere near good at football, I might have just been that nomad footballer who just wandered out and <laughs> yeah. played in Azerbaijan for a year and then did like a year in Georgia or something. And like, I just really love hearing stories about football from countries that you never hear it from, right? Definitely. And it was quite like just the fact that he put himself through those kind of challenging circumstances, just testament to the bloke himself, wasn't it, Rory? Mm-hmm. So I think just. Sit back, get your cup of tea on the go, listen to this because it is truly fascinating and someone that we probably wouldn't have necessarily known about until you listen to it on this pod, right, Rory? Exactly, exactly. So, guys, yeah, nothing else to say, but enjoy. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back to another episode of our Away From Home series where we talk to managers and players who have broadened their horizons, left the shores of the UK or Italy and explored other footballing cultures. This week we are joined by a manager whose career has taken him from India to the Caribbean, all across Africa and even to Birmingham. Uh,
0: Welcome to the show Stuart Hall. Stuart how are you doing mate? I'm great. And uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, share my experiences. You know, I hope uh, young coaches who are looking to uh, spread the wings and and get out and work, I hope, it, you know, they can get something from it, you know, some, some of the insight.
1: Nice. Yeah, I hope so. Well, there's something that seems like within the English game now, we're seeing a lot more players go and play abroad. And it seems like now... There's been a kind of culture shift within English football where people are starting to move abroad. Do you think this is something we'll see
0: more often, and can, it can only be good for the English game, right? Well, definitely. If you think of the the influx of foreign coaches and foreign players into this country, then there's there's going to be a lot of coaches and players, obviously here, who get displaced. You know, they they. So the obvious uh, answer is for as people come into this country and take our jobs, we move abroad and look for jobs elsewhere, you know. Mm -hmm. It's a spillover, you know. Yeah. I think it's something like,
1: like we're going to go to Birmingham City because that's kind of where you started your coaching career. And the player that stands out at the minute came from Birmingham himself, Jude Bellingham, right? Who is going and absolutely smashing it in the Bundesliga. We've seen plenty of players or a few players do that before him. Do you think it will benefit? And is it benefiting the English national team already?
0: Definitely. And by the way, with Jude... Uh, I signed his father. His father played for me, Mark, uh, non-league nice. at Hanzo in town. Yeah. Wow. Uh, he, he, he's was a young... special
1: player, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Mark was a young 19-year-old then at uh, Wolverhampton University and he came and played semi-pro for us. And uh, But definitely your question... Um, I think of it that the more experience and exposure you get to different tactics, different styles, different coaches, different players, the more problems you have to solve on a day-to-day basis, then mm-hmm. the better, the better, the more rounded you become. And I think that shows with Jude. He looks a very, very well-rounded young individual with the experiences mm-hmm. he's already had. You know, like slogging it out in the Championship one minute and then playing at the top of the Bundesliga and <laughs> and in Europe the next minute, you know? Any World yeah, it, it's incredible
1: how you made the step up without really breaking a sweat. It's insane. Um, but we're going to look at your career and we're going to talk about So we always start in the same place and that's the beginning, right? It makes yeah. sense. How did you get into football? Who was the biggest influence on your life to kind of ignite that passion for the game?
0: Well, like a lot of coaches, uh, especially coaches who've started coaching young, uh, I was a failed player. You know, so okay. I, had a, I had a flirt. I had a flirt with a few league clubs, and and never really, especially the Wolves, and never really um, hit the heights and got released. And then I played semi-pro, um, and from semi-pro, I ended up as a sort of in a sort of a player-coach's role. And mm. it was always the coaching side that fascinated me. You know, the the the, the tactical side fascinated me and i found myself listening really really carefully to what what the coach was saying and what the manager was saying and and i always looked at i found myself analyzing what we'd done you know semi pro then it was tuesday night and thursday night training you know and and i used to analyze what we'd done in training even though most of it was most of it was fitness based at that level okay. and i and i'd i'd look at what we'd done and i'd try to think why we'd done it you know, and try to, like, pick the bones out of what we were doing and why we were doing it. Um, And then I got – I was lucky enough to get manager's roles at at semi-pro level and coaches' roles, and I started to do my coaching badges. So how is it to manage at a
1: semi-pro? Because obviously you're dealing with people who have day jobs, okay? You're dealing with people who are like, you know, it's always when the FA Cup's on, it's a bricklayer, it's a policeman, right? What are the challenges that come with
0: managing a semi-pro team? um trying you know in football we always say i even still say it now time is the enemy you know it's mm-hmm. how you manage your minutes in training that dep- that a lot of time can depend can determine how successful you are you know you're always standing on the side thinking did we cover that have we done enough work in that area mm-hmm. of you know and at semi pro that is like that gets rammed down your throat all the time because you you say right we're going to plan, we're playing four I'm going to do a session tonight with the two strikers. And you plan it and then you get a call 20 minutes before you're due to start. One of the strikers is stuck on the motorway. There's been a crash. And the other one works in a bank and somebody has done the adding up wrong at the end of the day. And there's a thousand pounds missing and he can't leave (laughs) until they find it. You know, like... (laughs) So it's definitely more of
1: a case of like, is it more thinking on your feet, being more adaptable than if you're in the professional game?
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think you tend to focus. Um, a clever man once said to me, um, uh, the game is all about the two 18-yard boxes. Uh, everything in between mm-hmm. is merely foreplay and propaganda. You know. And, <laughs> I like you know,
1: that. I like that. I think we got uh, the quote for the show. I like that. Um,
0: <laughs> and that's something that stuck with me. So I think as a coach, with time being the enemy, you, t- you tend to focus a lot on the two 18-yard boxes. Mm -hmm. you know i like it so then you get your
1: move into the professional game by going into the youth coaching at birmingham city so how did that opportunity come about and what kind of setup was there at birmingham at the time
0: right well i had done well at non-league level as i said at house in town and 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 we'd won a few things and we'd sold a lot of players into league clubs as well Mm -hmm. which gets you a link to you know uh to the league clubs and to the individuals at the clubs and um one of the uh, scouting staff at Birmingham actually played for me as a player, uh, and he he recommended me to Brian Eastick. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brian Eastick said we came to see me, and he said we're making the jump from centre of excellence to academy status. Um, I've got a little bit more on the budget. I can bring somebody in. Uh, you've been recommended. How, you know how do you feel about coming in? And, and I looked at it and it was to work with Brian Eastick and Bob Latchford and, and George Foster and people like that, you know, I thought that was, that was, a, and obviously Trevor Francis was the coach then, we were in the championship and I, and I thought it's a, it's a great opportunity, you know, and, and, um, and, and that's where, where it all started. Mm. Well, this was a fascinating time for Birmingham City
1: because it was around 97 that you joined, right? And it was yeah. that time where Birmingham were kind of get, well, like you said, getting promoted into the Premier League, down into the Championship, back into the Premier League. How was yeah. it to be in a, a club that was a bit of a, I hope it's not rude to say, but a bit of a yo-yo club, but did it still feel exciting to be there at the time?
0: Yeah, definitely. You were always on the end of your seat, you know, and uh, and we, we had a, we had very demanding people looking after us and if you look at um, if you look at academy i mean i still study academies around the world and if you look at academies now basically there's there's different models for an academy at a professional level like one academy will be tasked with how many players can you produce for the senior team and you will be judged on that you know like on a five-year rolling cycle you will be judged on how many players you've got into the first team and how many how many uh, appearances Mm-hmm. another academy would say we're not worried about that we want to develop outstanding 16 17 year olds and sell them as quick as we can because we're a selling club we need the money that's how we survive yeah, yeah. and that and then that sort of um and then you get a model like birmingham as was in between as was in between as was um the owners then which were the 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 Golds and David Sullivan and Karen Brady was the the CEO you know the West Ham all the people at West Ham now they were very 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 they ran a very very tight ship but very effective and very efficient i think most of the people at birmingham would agree most of the fans in that they wish they were back there now you know because they, you know um because the club have had serious financial problems yeah. since and our model was was a bit of both our model was can you develop players for Trevor for the first team. Uh, But also this is your budget. Can you actually pull that back every year? Uh, And we did that. We managed to, we managed to sell players uh, on a small scale, but we managed to do it. You know, there was the Darren Carters and the Andrew Johnsons and the, Mm -hmm. and the the, the Craig Fagans. And and we managed to do it and we managed to pull the budget back every year. Uh, And we managed to get some players in the senior team as well. So, You know, I think we we were quite good on our objectives.
1: Mm, Yeah, I think it's interesting in the academies, because I grew up watching Crew Alexandra and their whole motive is very much with the academies, get them into the first team. How can we keep the first team going by the homegrown kids? Um, How difficult a challenge is that? And how do you make the decision of like, this kid we're going to sell, this kid we're going to put in the team? Is it if there's any interest around that player or is it just we don't think he fits our system. We don't think he's right for us.
0: Well, ultimately it was always the the head coach, the Steve Bruce mm-hmm. or the Trevor Francis who would have the final say on that, you know? Um, and the club were quite good. They would let him have the final say. And, and I spent, uh, especially uh, Steve Bruce, Steve was very good at man management and he was very good at, um, he'd always say, what do you think? You know, when push came to shove and what do you think and do we need to do that and how badly do you want that? And mm-hmm. and he was quite good at opening the door and, and sitting down and, and and having a really good debate about things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he always, he was always trying to build a team at Birmingham and I think he was always in the position where he'd want to get value for money out of a young player before you thought about selling him. You know, mm-hmm. what can he give our first team, even if it's only on a short term basis, you know. Um and you know like Andrew Johnson he, he he scored goals coming off the bench he started games and then we traded him in for Clinton Morrison coming the other mm. way from Crystal Palace um and we got something like 3.5 million or something like that at the time which came off Clinton's fee you know mm. um so again that's a good example of getting goals out of him getting value for money out of him um the fans loved him you know, so it was that feel good factor because you know, fans, fans love young players, don't they? They love, yes. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and especially when they've come through the academy and it was about, you know, you only sell if it's going to be for something that you think at the time is going to suit you better, mm-hmm. you know? So
1: once you've done the youth coaching at Birmingham, you said you eventually moved into the reserves, like coaching the reserves slash under 23s. Now, how is it managing that team? Because you see it's often players from the first team going through rehab and it's players that aren't quite at the level of the first team. How hard is it to motivate players at that? And how much development do you see at that level?
0: The first thing is if you've got three players coming down from the senior squad into your under 23s, um, part of the management of them obviously is communication because they were, they were very tightly managed. Like, the the first team manager would say he's playing one hour and he did you know um and 59 minutes or 61 minutes you might get away with but you wouldn't get away <laughs> with anything outside of that you know it was and and it was uh this i want him to play 75 minutes and it was very very tightly managed and you were working to orders. So the first thing with the players is you had to make sure the players were okay with that. You know, you had to say straight away, listen, by the way, you're down for an hour tonight. How do you feel mm-hmm. about that? You know. Um so that was part of it. And another part of it I think is um most most of the uh senior pros are, they you know, they they're good people, you know, and they would they would be quite happy to help the young players and you could give them a bit of responsibility and you know, if you'd got a defender uh, playing in a, in a young back four, you could say, you know, you look after that back four with me because we're a little bit slow about getting out. And you know, can you can you get that line a little bit higher? And, and you could give responsibilities and, and get some good communication with them that you know through that.
1: Nice. And then from from there, you kind of get your first chance at management itself, and it is in India in Pune FC. Now, how yeah. did that opportunity come about? And we've talked to a few people now about who have been, who have managed in India. How did the standard there and the facilities, what were your first
0: impressions when you arrived? Right. Well, I got first, your first part of your question, I got into that, into, into that, and the ideas came into my head because I was also in my spare time at Birmingham, I was also doing coaches' uh, courses for the FA. Mm hmm. And I I graduated from being like a a level two tutor to a level three, then a level four, then a level five um, tutor, um, which I still do now. You know, I still do courses now and I've just done a um, level four in the Philippines a few months ago, you know. Um, So um, I was at um, Lillishall doing a level four uh, A license and there was an Indian coach on the course. And he just said to me, um, "There's a lot of corporates getting involved in football in India. It's taking off. The clubs are getting really well supported now financially. They're building training grounds. They're building stadiums. It's a good time to get into Indian football." And he said, "I know some people in Pune who are buying a new, who are buying the franchise for Pune." Um, and he said, "It'll be very well financed and and put together, very well organized. Would you be interested?" And you know what you think you think ah pie in the sky you know this guy just wants me to pass him on his a license you know he just wants me to tick the boxes <laughs> so you're like you, you and then all of a sudden a, and a week later when the course is finished you're getting a phone call from india saying would you like to come out and have a chat and, and that's how it happened and they took me out there for a week and they took me to a couple of games and showed me the standard of football in the indian it was the i league then it's before the super mm-hmm. league it was the, it was the i league They took me to a couple of games. They took me to Pune. They showed me the city where I'd live. They showed me sort of accommodation, um, showed me where we'd train, uh, different places. And then uh, we did the deal and and I went out there. But um, I I, I also got a gig then with ZTV doing the sort of expert analysis on, um, because we had to enter in India in Division 2 and get promotion to Division 1 of the I-League. And I got a contract part-time doing commentary for ZTV, as I said, expert analyst and all the games were division one. So our owners encouraged me to do that because I was watching. It was like scouting. It was like, so So you knew uh, what to expect when you got promoted. So exactly, exactly. So you know what to expect when you get promoted. So, um, I think the challenges were for us then, it was a massive difference in standards, you know, a massive difference in standards um, in uh, in the players. that You'd get some who you think, oh, that's not bad, it's quite decent. And then you'd get some players that, you know, you thought were, were miles off the standard and trying to explain all that to the, um, to get to do. You had to do profiles for the recruitment people. This is what I'm looking for, for a number three. And this is what I'm looking for for a number nine because they didn't understand any of that. That was all very, very new to them, you know. Um, they'd probably been watching players for a long, long time, but they hadn't ever done any profiling or, uh, or anything like that, you know.
1: And, and, what um, did you...
0: Yeah, Sorry, and
1: what did you find were the kind of main ideas you were trying to get across as you were coaching the team? You said you've got to try and raise these standards. What are the first things that you're trying to, like, implement?
0: Um, first one is the, uh, is, is a bit of honesty and a work ethic because what we would call hard work in terms of a performance, you know, and was miles away from what they would call hard work. Mm. You know, I used to say to them, uh, you know, when you're standing still, you should probably be walking. When you're walking, you should probably (laughs) be jogging. And when you're jogging, you should probably be sprinting. That's the best way I can explain it because at the minute you're not doing enough, you know, and, and (laughs) And it was that – and this was before GPS or anything like that, so you'd got no way of tracking them, you know. You'd got no – you couldn't say to a player, you've done uh, seven kilometres and I think you should be doing nine because you, you hadn't got that support, mm-hmm. you know. But very much, first of all, the work ethic and, and, and about having a really good um, training ground environment where everybody enjoyed it, where everybody worked hard, you know. Um, re- regular feedback sessions with them as well about um, – how they saw training and what they understood in training, what they didn't understand, you know. Mm. Um, and a lot of the players were from very humble backgrounds, and they and because of that, they never wanted to question you, and they never wanted to ask why. So you could get them to do it almost; you had to do it anonymously. You right. know, uh, fill in a fill fill this uh, questionnaire and Don't put your name on it. You know, let's have a look at it and oh. let's see what comes out. You know, because they'd never challenge you. Mm you know um i don't know if i'm that scary or or what it was but, <laughs> but...
1: nice so then as you said you got promoted into the the eye like the top division was it a big step up in quality and was yeah. there much like yeah. ad- like adaptations you had to make
0: yeah you're talking double budget you're talking uh a much higher standard of foreign player. Cause at that time you were in allowed three foreign players and that the foreign players would go to another level, you know, probably players who've got international caps mm-hmm. um, and were paid very, very well and looked after very well. Um, and it was definitely, um, you know, we, we, we went on a development route um, and what we said is we can't sign players from the Indian, you know, we can, we can, getting the market on the foreign players because there's plenty out there we can get on them on that bandwagon but locally you can't say we're going to sign three indian internationals because they just weren't there they were already contracted and snapped up so we went down and looked at the under twenty international under 23 team and the national under 20 teams we went down and looked at that and tried to bring in players from there who would need a lot more work a little bit of patience but they were the only players that were really accessible to a new club where most of the talent had already been taken, you know.
1: Is this something that you've always enjoyed throughout your career, then developing players? Because it's obviously something you would have done through Birmingham City and through yeah. the semi-professional
0: as well. Is it something that you particularly enjoy within the work? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I've always, if you give me a choice, I'd go for a young team rather than an old team. I think they're easier to work with. I think you get more out of them. I think... um they give you more back as well. They're always asking questions. They always want to know. You know, they um and 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 they're an easier they're an easier fix to work with. Mm. And
1: then from there you move to your first international management job. Now we're going to talk about the difference between club management and international management. St. Vincent and the Grenadines, first question. Um, my my hero as a child growing up watching Crew Alex was Rodney Jack. Did you have any interaction with Rodney Jacks? I'm pretty sure he played for St. Vincent and the Grenadines.
0: No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Oh,
1: <laughs> damn, never mind. So, how, how... What are the main differences between club management and international management, and what are the different challenges? Because I know that, like, obviously, for a long time, you don't have matches. For a long time, like, you don't have players together for a very long time. And then add that to a tropical island somewhere that's quite difficult to get to, what challenges did this job offer you?
0: Um, Yeah, uh, lack of professionalism because they didn't have a professional league. They had a, they had a league uh, which only played for a few months of the season because there weren't many clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, that meant players' fitness would be an issue. They always, you know, spent out of season... Um, um, getting the players together on a regular basis because of budgets would be a problem also um, you would ask for a one month camp and it would end up as a as a two week camp because of finance you know you were all it, you, you always knew that um, you were in a small scale operation and that's not being disrespectful to anybody there who but that's the, that was the way they had to cut their cloth you know mm-hmm. that, that was the way it was, and but when I was at Saint Vincent, I always got. You always knew. You, you weren't going to be there long. You always knew it wasn't a long. You, you oh, always definitely. knew it wasn't like you know. You knew that if they'd had a bad crop on the bananas, that you'd probably gone. They couldn't afford you, but. And uh, <laughs> but it, it was it was. um we had a World Cup qualifier. We had World Cup qualifiers for South Africa two thousand and ten and we played Canada home and away. Um and after that we we were in a group with Mexico and the and the big boys, but and we knew we knew, I knew personally, that um if we didn't beat Canada, then that would be more or less the end of the contract. There would be more or less uh pull pulled to one side and hey, by the way, uh we know we know you're working hard, but um we just can't afford you, you know. Right. So that was that was a that was that was a way you approached the job. But what I did is because because of the lack of of period because of periods in the calendar where there was no football, I'd say I'll take the under twenties. They're going somewhere. Okay. I'll take the twenties. Conquer cafe under twenties. I'll take the under twenties. I'll take the under seventeens. Mm-hmm. So I found myself. I immersed myself in in all age groups, not because. It was good for development because I didn't expect to be there long enough mm. for, for for development. But just to keep myself busy, given value for money, and so I enjoyed going out on the grass. You know, even if sometimes you got to run the goats off the training pitch. You know, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> now, so, now You kind of alluded to it. You talked about playing Canada and
1: playing Mexico and playing like CONCACAF as a organization seems like, or as a region seems like one of the least balanced regions. Like you've got these yeah, yeah. huge, massively populated countries against these tiny Caribbean islands how how would the how are these countries ever able to develop and can you see any of those countries like the islands kind of ever catching up to the likes because Canada are progressing quite a bit but can you see any of the others any room for development?
0: Um, Well I think I think it's very similar to Africa you know some Mm. parts of the Caribbean in terms of uh, it's mismanaged Right, you know I I think the potentials there player wise mm-hmm. I think it's just a mess uh bad bad administration a little bit of corruption a little bit of this and and uh, and I don't think they really ever uh, hit hit the potential mm-hmm. you know like you'll have a wild card every every competition so you go into a concaf competition and you know Mexico and America are going to be strong and now Canada are up there with them and probably Costa Rica will be hanging on to the shirt towels. But then there's always somebody who comes from nowhere, like um a Guatemala or a, yeah. a Panama. Honduras do it every so a, often, a, right? A yeah. and, and they'll come and they'll have a good little um little mini cycle. And then the next tournament they disappear and they're nowhere to be seen. You know, and yeah, that's yeah. that's pr- probably bad the, where the bad management, the administration, um, you know, bit of corruption, bad, you know, people haven't been paid for this and don't want to be involved again, and it's You know, I think that's when that kicks in, you know.
1: Yeah, well, I think in that FIFA documentary, it was highlighted with Jack Warner, I think, was the head of CONCACAF, right? And just how badly he managed that whole region in a fairly selfish way. Um, And then you kind of see the fruits of it. But you're right, because Panama kind of popped up for one World Cup, then we don't see him again. Honduras popped up for one World Cup, don't see him again. Um, But when you look back at your first kind of step into international management, what were your like personal highlights managing the Saint Vincent and the Grenadines
0: um uh when some of the the games we had were very uh, the two games against Canada were good hmm. um and the um playing Cuba away uh Venezuela nice uh, in, in friendly games Jamaica in front in the home in the home the um, their um, stadium's called the Office, mm-hmm. uh, and we went there and got a five-two hammering, and I got sent off. And, uh, <laughs> when, love it. And uh, Wh- when they interview, when they interview me and said what went wrong, I said bad day at the office.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that classic. There we go. I love it. <laughs> uh, nice. So then from there you go to Zanzibar, which is kind of a, it's a country that is almost a punchline to like you know the middle of nowhere, right? how yeah. did this opportunity come around and what yeah what is Zanzibar what is it like I don't know uh,
0: it's a it's a million people spread over three islands the majority are on um, Zanzibar island itself which is called Unguja, which is around seven hundred and fifty eight hundred thousand 800,000 people now I would guess so um, if you compare that with Iceland and you know, and some of the other countries, obviously you've got a chance and and they're football mad. They're absolutely football mad. They play everywhere, you know? Um, uh, and, uh, I went there. It was part, I was interviewed for the Tanzania national coaches job in Tanzania. And they actually flew me to Tanzania and interviewed me. You know, I was in the, the, I was in the last three Mm. and a Brazilian coach got it. Um, and I didn't get it but then somebody contacted me and said we saw all your interviews in um, in tanzania and we've looked at your cv and everything uh we're trying to do something here would you be interested and i said well i'm not going through all that interview procedure again and i'm on a short list and all of that and they said no you've got the job if you want it Wow. so i said uh well what are you trying to do and they said well we need you to come over because it's part of a big project so I went over for a week and uh, I sat down with the federation and with a sponsor and they said uh, they'd applied to join FIFA because they weren't in FIFA. They still are not in right. FIFA. Yeah. So what they did is they played in the Eastern Central African Championships against Uganda and Rwanda and Kenya and Tanzania, but they couldn't play in in, um, in the uh, AFCON, you know, African Cup of Nations. So they had lobbied uh, FIFA and they were putting a petition together and they were going to meet set Blatter and put their cards on the table for full membership of FIFA. So the first part of my job was to write a development plan that went with that. So I had to write a plan for development for the national youth teams and the league, write a plan for development to coach education uh, and all the things that FIFA would want to see. Um, and they went along and they all toddled off and they went and they were told that they had a great chance. Obviously, that's why they were spending the money to bring me in. They were told they had a great chance. And when they got there, they were refused. Uh, they were, they were, it was turned down. So uh, I did the uh, Eastern Central African Championships. Uh, we, we lost in the semi-final on penalties to Uganda, which was a, a, a very good showing. So everybody was happy with that. But after that, there was nothing to do. You've got nothing till that tournament comes around again the following year. So there was nothing to do. So Azam, Azam FC then, who were on the mainland in Tanzania, they bought my contract from the Zanzibar right. Federation. And were they given a reason as to why they were refused? Was there like a, it was just, or well, just refused? I think a couple of the, uh, a few of the objections uh, against it. Uh, because in the Tanzanian national team then, and, and still now, there'd always be three or four very good Zanzibar players in the Tanzanian right. national team. Okay, right. Um, <laughs> there it is.
1: Yeah, that's, there it is. Okay, right. So then, as you said, you move across to Tanzania with Azam FC, and we're seeing now, like, there's rumours of this African Super League, and it's the same yeah. idea of the European Super League, and I think it brings the same threats as the European Super League, just in Africa. Um what are, how kind of, how organised and what are the standards of African domestic football and what did you see in Tanzania? Because I think, obviously, the talent base is there within African players and African teams in the World Cup are doing better and better and better. Um, Yeah, so what are the standards of the league? And then we can talk about the African Super League.
0: Um, The league, I watch the league now regularly. I watch on YouTube and I watch all the Azam games because... Um, uh, a lad who was my assistant, I retired him as a player, and I gave him my job, uh, gave him the job as my assistant. He sp- spoke perfect Swahili English, right? Uh, and so he was useful for me on the interpreting as well. Uh, he played football at a good level. He played in Europe, and I thought he could think outside the box, and he was perfect to get into coaching. So I pushed him into coaching, and I pushed him into England to do his C license and his B license, which I organised <laughs> for him. Yeah, yeah, and and he's the first team manager now. He's the manager wow. as MFC, um, and they're currently second in the league. And so I still follow the club and the games. Mm-hmm. So I'm right up to date, if you like, on the standards. I still watch a bit of Kenyan football. I watch a little bit of South African, the South African league, which is quite good. I watch a lot of the African Champions League games because mm-hmm. I've competed in it. You know, and yeah, and the standard is getting better and better. The players are working harder. The balls moving quicker. It's getting less now about individual skills, which it always was, mm-hmm. and it's getting more now into good, solid teamwork and and, um, and 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 tactical awareness, which wasn't there before. You know, mm-hmm. I remember going. I did uh, some license courses in South Africa uh, once for the English FA, and um, I said to one of the coaches on the course, I said. Why does everybody have about fifteen touches of the ball before you release it? And he said, "Well, listen," he said, "when we play, it's fifty a side." He said, "So if you pass the ball on a Tuesday, you won't see it again till Friday." And <laughs> yeah. I, thought, I thought that was, <laughs> I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I think they've, uh, I think they're getting now a lot more tactically aware. You know, mm. I think they're, they're they all wear the GPS now, and I think the fitness levels of the sports science side of it has got a lot better, you know. Um, they don't get to go to the witch doctor now if they get an injury. They actually go to uh, and get treated properly, you know. You don't yeah. rub a chicken's leg. You don't rub a chicken's leg on it. And it's coming on. And again, it's only the administration and, and sometimes the corruption that holds it back. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, because the potential is there. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Um, so. So it's going the right way. And the last World Cup showed that, as you, you yeah. rightly said. The last World Cup showed that. You know, they're, they're competition now in a match for anybody. Mm, definitely, definitely. I try to keep an eye on, like, we've
1: interviewed people who are from Cameroon and Senegal, and we've kind of talked about their domestic leagues. And I do try and keep an eye on it every so often, especially the African Champions Leagues. I think people yeah. do kind of... Yeah. I think the second it's not the European Champions League, people just dismiss it. But this, like the Asian Champions League, the African Champions League, the standards are incredibly high. And as you said, you managed in the African Champions League. So which team was that with and how was it to take on a kind of continental competition?
0: Um, we uh, The highlight of that was we beat um, Esperance of Tunisia, who were actually the African champions at the time. We beat them in Tanzania 2-1 after being a goal down and nobody could believe it. That wow. really put that really put Azam on the map. Um, they were ranked number one in Africa, and we weren't in the top hundred. Um, and then in the away leg, unfortunately, we had some suspensions and some injuries, and we got beat two 0 So we lost on aggregate. Um, so it was uh, so that was a highlight, and also uh, teams like Rabat, Casablanca, and um, and. Um, Mamelodi Sundowns and people like that, you know, re- real good teams. You know, f- fantastic training grounds, great environment. You know, good support staff and and coaching staff, good budget for players. You know, very very good teams. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, you see the uh, the atmosphere in the stadiums, especially like like you said, Casablanca oh. and all that. The atmospheres are absolutely incredible. Like for for as I'm FC, what was the atmosphere like in the stadium what kind of attendances well, were you getting did you see an increase
0: yeah definitely well I, as I we're a new team it was only founded in 2006 and and uh, and uh, I won uh, I won the Mapinduzi Cup actually in Zanzibar which is the first tournament they won and we finished second in the league that year as well which was a which got us into um CAF competitions you know it got us into Confederation Cup which is their version of the Europa League you know okay and uh the owners were that happy when we came back in on the ferries on the ferry from zanzibar which Azam company own we were meet, we were greeted by a marching band on the side of the quay you know like and and, and we got off the we got off the ferry to a marching band and we were like carried to the buzz and 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 um, it was like incredible because they were that and the the, the people in africa you know to, the players are fantastic to work with you know you can get a great like uh, training environment because mm-hmm. The players want everybody wants to be happy. It's not. It's not. You know. um, It's not difficult to make them happy. You know. You can get them enjoying what they do, and you can. You can get some good banter going with them. They like it. You know. They Mm -hmm. and and the fans as well are are incredible. The fans. And when I was in Tanzania, I don't think I've ever been applauded into a stadium by the home fans. You know, on an away game. Yeah, yeah. know, It was the, the support. The supporters were fantastic. So they um, could
1: see that you were developing the game in Tanzania in general, not just like it was a, yeah, it was a, like a, a display for the country, not just for the club,
0: right? It, it's the respect for people involved in football. I mean, mm-hmm. a little side story of that. Um, I've turned up for my, uh, to do my television um, um my monthly TV thing, because in Africa, obviously, you have, most people, you have to pay in advance for everything. Otherwise, nobody pays. So <laughs> I, I'd go into the local uh, DSTV shop to do my um, um, DSTV package to, um, uh, for my monthly subscription. And there'd be a massive queue. There'd be like six windows and there'd be like a massive queue. And And I'd walk in and the security guard would say, Coach, where are you going? I'd say, I've come to do it. No, you, Coach, you don't queue. You don't queue. Wow. Come with me, and they'd open a desk for you. They'd open, a <laughs> desk for you. and none of the people would get upset. Nobody would say, "Oh, look at that big time, Charlie." Everybody's saying, "Hello, coach. Good morning, coach. How Hello. are you?" You know, like it's the respect for football, yeah. and people involved in football in in Africa is tremendous. Beautiful, yeah. and from there you move on to. Uh, Kenya,
1: which is with, with two teams, you have soft, uh, I hope I say it right, Sofapaka and AFC yeah. Leopards. Was it a step up in Kenya? Because I know that Kenya have, like, they're very good at athletics and they're very yeah. good at like they do other sports very well. Was there a step up in the standards of football from Tanzania?
0: Um, not really, not really, because um, Kenya. C- ball always has these ex like, the national team the club teams and everybody and i went in one of those periods where an agent got me the job at, at sofa packer and i turned up and um i found out uh nobody was happy nobody was smiling nobody wanted to train uh, because i hadn't been paid for four months um and uh that reflected in the results, because what we would managed to do is we got the training going and we got a certain standard of, of intensity and work in the training sessions, but then that didn't reflect in the games. We'd get beat 1-0 and I'd look at it and say, well, I've got a good squad of players here and in training, everything looks fine. And it seems like I'm developing a relationship with the players, And but that's not showing on match day. So what's happening? And eventually then, I got, the, uh, I got all the senior players together, four or five of the senior players, and said, guys, what's wrong? You know, don't you fancy me? Don't you fancy the work that I do? Don't you like my ideas? What's what's going on? And they said, no, coach, we really enjoy what you're doing. It's been breath of fresh air and everything, but we haven't been paid for four months. And do you know what it's like when you can't pay your kids' school fees? And do you know what it's like when you go home and you climb over the back wall because the landlord's waiting at the front door for, for his rent, you know? And like... Yeah. And um, so uh, I had several then um, personal chats with the owners about paying the players. And when it didn't look like there was going to be a satisfactory conclusion, um, I was lucky where I received a phone call from Azam saying, um, would you come back? Yeah. Uh, And I said, uh, when can you send me the ticket? So...
1: And when you're talking to the owners, like, and you're saying, look, you need to pay these players. Is it like talking to a brick wall? Is there any way you can be like, are
0: you ever going to win that conversation? Um, I th- It's very, very difficult. You know, as people say at times, like, you know, you should, if you master working, if you master managing up, you know what I mean by that, obviously, if yes. you master, if you master managing up and you've got to remember most of the time, you're working with egocentric multi-millionaires or even billionaires Mm -hmm. people have never said no to them in their life and and you know like when you're managing like it's it's like working for the united nations at times you know Mm -hmm. you 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 have to write a speech and you have to stick to it word for word you have to make sure you don't get emotional and that's very very difficult at at times Mm. Um, because when you when you're dealing with people's
1: livelihoods it is it's it's serious right it's very very serious
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: so so then you go back to Azam. Um, and how is it they say never go back? How is it to return to the club?
0: It was great. I arrived at the airport in Dar es Salaam with about 300 Azam fans and a band and everything. And they, and again, they they carried me to the taxi rank. I think they'd have carried me (laughs) to my apartment if I'd have asked them. Um, and it was great. And everything we picked up, we picked up straight away. Um, we got back into a winning groove. Um, and and uh, I think we won, yeah, we won stuff again. We won that season, even though it was like the season was well underway. We won again, we picked up, we won things, and it was great. It was like I'd never been away, you know. Mm. Um, and the top management, the top management at Azam were fantastic to work with. You know, we had a five million dollar training ground, we had wow. uh Olympic swimming pool, we had accommodation for 60, 70 people, the staff, we had our own staff bungalow. Um uh, we had a restaurant we had it, it was unbelievable. we had three training pitches two grass one one artificial you know one turf we had floodlights on the turf to fifa uh champ, you know um for fifa champions league um, uh it was fantastic it was you know a great place to work
1: nice and then your adventures take you out to bangladesh with saif sc um, I've never really thought of football in Bangladesh. It's usually cricket. How hard is it in a country where football isn't the main sport to get any kind of um, investment or to to get players? How how big a challenge was it in Bangladesh?
0: Um, very difficult. Very difficult. The facilities were 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 poor. Um, the training training facilities were poor. You had to look. Um, the, the kilometers that we've covered, you know, me and the team manager looking for a decent piece of grass to train on and to develop as a training ground, you know, it was very, very difficult. Mm. Dakar is a crazy place, you know, the, the traffic, the pollution and, um, just getting about basic, getting about anywhere is, is, is a problem. And there was a massive disparity in the football. You found out that, um, All the teams had money or most of the teams had money. All the corporates were throwing money into football because they'd done the hockey and they'd done the cricket and football was a bit of a novelty. You know, you'll you'll find most of the big companies over there like Bush and Dura Kings, who are the champions of Bangladesh. Now they own a professional hockey club, a professional cricket club and a professional Mm -hmm. football club, you know? So it was very much for the corporates. Oh, let's have a bit of fun with football. You know, we've, Mm -hmm. we've, you know, we're getting a bit fed up with the cricket and the hockey. Let's have a bit of fun with the football and let's see what we can do. And they were paying outrageous amounts of money for foreign players, you know, uh, and for coaches. They were paying outrageous amounts of money. And, but the disparity that that then um, made between the foreign players and the local players was incredible, you know. <laughs> Um, And how do you deal with that
1: within a changing room? Like if you've got local players and they know that the Brazilian who's moved over is on
0: 10 times as much, how do you deal with that? You have to sign, you have to make sure the foreign players you sign are uh, are empathetic, good characters. If you get foreign players in the dressing room who say, I'm not passing to a local because I won't get the ball back, you know, then, then you're done because you've got a split in the dressing room. You had to get good characters in and you had to give them responsibility and say, hey, I'm the coach, but you're here to help me develop these local players as well. You've got experience. You've played here. You've played there. Pass that experience on. You know, when they make a mistake, don't slaughter them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, have a quiet word and lift them. And, and remember, they're not the same as you meant t- t- technically, tactically, physically, mentally. They're, they're not the same as you. You know. Um and again what we did at Safe, which the owner wanted, uh, we had one of the best academies. And um what we did at Saif is we had a couple of players in the Bangladesh national team, but we had half of the Bangladesh under twenty team and half of the under seventeen team. So nice. again, we went we went the long way. We went the long way, you know, the, the development route.
1: Nice. And is there so is there still development in the game in Bangladesh? Is it is it increasing in levels, or do, are there still the same problems? Kind of there.
0: Um No, well, I, yeah, I think I've looked at uh, the technical director there, but Paul is a good friend of mine, and I keep in touch and I look at their results. And the national youth teams have done quite well recently, mm-hmm. and they're especially their girls teams because they set up a residential girls uh, in dormitories, girls living there in dormitories with a sponsor, training every day, education. Wow. Um, and they're they're really punching their weight when with the under 15 under 16 under 18 sort of girls and and, and all that. Um, and um, the, the the men's national youth teams have started to do better as well. so there's quite a bit of uh, investment and development in, in in the national youth team programs there.
1: Nice it's good to see I think we're seeing a lot of countries now like they I think the standard globally. Is increasing, like even countries that in the past you would kind of dismiss as having zero football intact. Like if you think about um, American Samoa when they lost thirty-one nil or whatever it was, it doesn't feel like there's any countries where that would happen anymore. It feels like globally the level is increased. Do you agree?
0: Yeah, definitely. And and uh, there's, there there is a new FIFA scheme which is being pushed by Arsene Wenger in his new technical role at FIFA, where uh, they're providing funding for people who come up with good um, excellence projects uh talent identification products um they're going to fund them on four and five on a four and five year cycle uh because they want arsene wenger is highlighted they want they don't want world cups with the men or the women where you think you can write down three names four names and nobody outside those names has got a chance of winning the world cup yeah they, they want the minos to get closer they want the Minos to have better preparation. You know, they want their young players and their national youth teams to have better preparation. So there's a lot of FIFA funding at the minute uh, going that way, you know, into, into like you said, closing that gap, that disparity, you know.
1: Nice. And then after Bangladesh, because I'm a little bit aware of time, we're going to kind of try and wrap up quickly. You Go back to Africa with spells in Ethiopia, and Kenya, um, yeah. what are your what are the abiding memories that stick with you from Ethiopian and Kenyan football? In those spells, it was Wazito FC
0: and Saint George SC. Uh, crazy experiences. Ethiopia, um, death threats. Uh, wow. Having our team buzz stoned and players getting stitches, going going to hospital and getting stitches in some of the players. Um, civil war started. The league was stopped, and that's why I left. Uh, people who know me say i started the civil war but i can honestly say i had nothing to do with it um there was um so that was an experience but forty thousand people in the national stadium for every saint george's game you couldn't buy a ticket and wow. if uh, if you lost the game you needed uh you needed a saucepan on your head because they'd throw rocks at you if, if if you won the game they'd carry you around the town you know it was like crazy emotions but good experience uh, and a great club, St. George, great club, you know, like won the league 17 or 18 times or something. Great experience. Was he told completely other end of the scale? Um, a phone call, random phone call from a billionaire who said, I bought a kid in Kenya. Uh, I bought a club in Kenya. Uh, They're robbing me blind. I've got all sorts of problems. Would you go and sort it out? You've been recommended. So I went in, we sacked four staff, 12 players. There was um uh, there was a, uh, a betting syndicate betting against from players. There was players in a betting syndicate pl- betting against the team and that was being um, investigated. Wow. Um, there was money being sent from the owner to the management to signing on fees etc for new players and they were pocketing it and so players didn't want to play because they hadn't been signing on fees and everything. It was all sorts of a mess. So the football wasn't very pretty and then luckily we got to a transfer window uh January and signed uh, seven or eight new players and then we were in the relegation places and and um we then went sort of uh, nine or 10 games unbeaten and got happily up to mid mid table which the owner was really happy with considering the problems at the club and then covid bit covid started then and the league was suspended um, I was going to say, yeah, it's a Swedish,
1: it's a Swedish man who owned that club. I think I've got him yeah. it down as Ricardo Badoa. How did yeah, that yeah. come about? How did buying a, cl- a Swedish guy buying a club in Kenya seems fairly random? Uh,
0: yeah, well, he owns a club in Spain as well, uh, a, a lower league club in Spain. But he's football mad, Ricardo. Right. He's a crazy man, but a great guy. You know, he's like, um, he's one of these guys that you know. He says, if you're selling, you better hope I'm not buying. You know, he's like one of them. He's like, you know, he's competitive in everything. But he he was buying into uh, he was buying into banks and and um, um, stuff like that in Kenya and Tanzania, and he felt that he'd be a good place to have a club. You know, because he'd wow. got a lot of business interests there, and he put a lot of money in. To be fair to him,
1: yeah. yeah. So oh, then, yeah. when you when you arrive and you realize there's all that corruption going on in the club but you know you can't get rid of them immediately right at least yeah. not the players yeah how do you manage that interim between okay i'm stuck with you now you can go
0: um it's look at what you've got look at who's going to give you 90 minutes look at you okay. know you know you've got your fakes in there and your people who've got their their own um, their own problems with, it, with the club, look at who's going to really go out and give you 90 minutes. They might not be quite as good technically as or tactically as the player that you're leaving out, but they're honest and they'll give you everything you've got. And then if you get beat, it's not a hammering. If you get beat 2-1, you've lived to fight another day. You know, yeah. you've not got massive confidence problems. But if you've got players who are going out there, regardless of reputation, who don't want to run around and they don't look like they want to be part of what you're trying to do then obviously they've got, they've got to be sidelined and and it means the team will go young for a little while. And it means you've got a lot of extra work to do on the training ground and putting your arm around people. And, you know, um, but it's, it's, it's a better way to go. I feel, you know, mm-hmm. and if you, because you, you, then you can say in the dressing room, listen, I'm always going to be honest with you. You go out there now and you be honest um, and for the club and do your best, you know, and let's see, you know, and don't worry about mistakes and don't worry if it's not quite right. And, there's going to be no shouting and yelling and screaming here. You know, let's look at everything for what it is. And um, and then, as I've said, luckily, um, that was early December. And then luckily, 1st of January, transfer windows open. And, you know, you've done all your homework in December. You've spoke to the players you want to bring in. I shouldn't say that because it's illegal but you <laughs> more we all know it happens we all know it yeah. happens yeah and then and then you get them in quickly you know and you say to the you say to the CEO and the secretary listen we've got to get these boys in quickly you know because mm-hmm. uh, I was bringing boys in from Togo and from um, from like Ethiopia and from all over the place so we said so, you have uh, got uh, to get them in quickly
1: are these players that you've worked with previously yeah. do you have a yeah. scout system that's going around Africa
0: or how does that work no, I work with, uh, I work with, uh, I think I signed, I think I signed about eight players, nine players, and I think five of them or six of them I've worked with before. Okay. Um, and in Kenya with AFC Leopards and Kenya with uh, Sofa Packer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then outside, obviously, with clubs outside. So so um, I knew that they were a good fit, you know, and I knew they'd work with me and, and, um, and, and, we'd, and we'd be okay. And we were, you know, they picked up straight away. You know, we hit the ground running straight away as soon as we got them in.
1: Nice. Yeah, I, I I think it's something in a few of our interviews that when we talked to managers, they said, like, you know, getting players that you have a previous relationship with and they know what you expect, you know what they can deliver, just gives yeah. that level of, like, assurance that kind of provides a comfort and a base level of performance, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's about trust, isn't it? Yeah. It's about trust, you know. Um. You might make mistakes, you're human, but I know I can trust you. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's you know, that's the way it is. Yeah, nice. And then currently to jump, jump a little bit
1: forward, currently you are in Philippines uh, with the Philippines national team. Um, you're first team manager, but now technical director. Um yeah. so back into international management, the Philippines are a well, we know it's a football-mad country, right? They have a lot of passion for football over there. Um, Premier League fans will know of Neil Etheridge, who you've worked with, I believe. Um, yeah. How is it going in the Philippines? And again, Asian football, we're seeing improve improving um, performances in the World Cup. What are your like short-term and long-term objectives with the Philippines?
0: Uh, well, I went there as as national coach interim, so I had two contracts. I had uh, the first contract was to just shore up the national team because the fella doing it, there was a problem. The fellow who was in, in charge was a, t- a temporary problem with um, qualifications. Um, so uh, I went in temporary and then, but I also had a second contract already written to become technical director. My brief as technical director was different. to the, It was, uh, look after this... Uh, national youth teams mm-hmm. um, and develop uh, a coach education structure or improve the existing coach education structure. So things that I've done uh, a lot in the past, work with young players on the one side, working, developing coaches on the other side, something I was very comfortable with. So it was all about writing development plans, new syllabuses, um Say to people you know when when the under 16s camp or the under 19s camp this is the duration of the camp this is what we need to do this is the staffing levels we need to be at um there was no national analyst so uh uh i had to bring in an analyst and we set up a, and get all the toys for him uh you, you can't have an analyst without toys can you, you, get, you, you got to
1: to... pen and paper yeah yeah,
0: oh, yeah. so so um we got all that up and running and, and, and just improving the standard of everything. And, and, um, and like you say, there, there's a, there's a, a, football culture developing in the Philippines. It's not always been there. It's a basketball culture because the Philippines mm. has always followed, um, America. So okay. even though most of the population are five foot six, they all want to play basketball. I can't understand <laughs> that. But, but, um, but so it's a, it's a developing football culture now the young the young boys and girls are getting into football it's very much a new um football culture there and what's helped yeah. us is the women have qualified for the world cup this year nice uh they're run by we've got an australian um head coach and his support staff they've done a fantastic job they've been well supported from within the philippines budget wise and they won the um they won the um uh, Southeast Asian um, women's tournament uh, and they qualify for the World Cup so that's great so you now start to see football on billboards you know in the Philippines mm-hmm. when you're driving along the road and the electronic billboard comes up and you're starting to see football you know you know there and they're starting CNN Philippines, you know, CNN Philippines. Yeah, you start. There's more now. That gets more minutes when they talk about football in the news mm-hmm. programs and, and all the rest of it. So it's going the right way, but there's a lot of work to do.
1: Nice, good. So you're based between there and the UK now, right? Or are you mainly based over there? I'm,
0: well, I'm permanently in the Philippines. You know, they, like. Um, and uh, last year was a crazy year because they crammed all after COVID. They crammed all these tournaments in so. We had under 16 boys, under 17 boys, under 19 boys, under 20 boys, under 23 boys, like so. We were in camp all the time, permanently, you know, and and uh, and tournaments, and uh, wow. but it was good. So this year it's the girls' turn in Southeast Asia. The, the girls have got most of the tournaments now. So our Australian staff will look after that. Um, so it gives me now. I'll have a big push on coach education now over the next um, the the upcoming months. Nice.
1: Perfect, Stuart. I think that was really enjoyable. Thank you very much. Before we let you go, we have a few quick quick-fire questions we always <laughs> kind of ask our guests. Um so, first question, um who is the the best player you've
0: coached? Um I only worked with him spasmodically because he, he when he was injured or came into the reserves at Birmingham City. Chris, Christoph Tugary.
1: Oh, I was hoping he was going to get a mention. I was hoping he was going to get a mention. Walter well, World well
0: Cup winner, obviously. World well Cup winner, CV, Barcelona, AC, Milan, and then Birmingham. I mean, that doesn't stack up really, does it? You know, like. <laughs> How was it when he arrived? So I remember he was a huge, he was a huge buy for Birmingham, right? Yeah, yeah. He saved us from relegation. He came halfway through the season. He got something like 12, 13 goals, and he saved us from relegation, basically. He was a super player and, a, and, a, and an excellent human being. Nice. Um, another one I would single out Dwight York, and again, it was only for a short time, uh, and it was in his later years. But Dwight, uh, technically and everything, and and his love for a football, you know, like um, Dwight was was very good. Beautiful. Nice. Next question: the best atmosphere
1: you've you've witnessed or managed in uh, Saint George when it's going well. Okay, nice, good. Yeah. 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 And the Thank worst if it's going badly, one. I imagine. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, okay, and oh, and last one, uh, the best goal that you've seen scored?
0: Um, our winning goal against Esperance when they were champions of Africa uh, in, uh, in the CAF game at the Indira Salaam, where uh, we picked up a ball just inside our half and it was about four seconds in the back of their net it was wow. like uh it was like one touch three or four one touch passes and, and as i said in, in the back of their net they didn't like they they couldn't believe uh what had happened from like being one nil up to two one down
1: <laughs> nice and last uh, last one i promise um, what what do you consider the, the like let's say the three highlights of that your career
0: was- oh sorry three highlights yeah. Uh, three highlights. Um, I've worked with some great coaches. I say that, mm-hmm. you know, it's all, you know, like um, when I was young, I used to go and watch Dave Sexton work at Aston Villa when I was at I was in town. Uh, every session was f- phenomenal. Um, working closely in coach education and as a friend with the great late Dick Bate, uh, who was a massive influence on me and inspiration um, guys like Brian Eastick, uh, coming along the way, uh, my first big job at Birmingham, Brian was, mm-hmm. Brian was great to work with. Um, so, you know, in, like in, you know, these people inspire you, you know, when you look at, uh, um, if I'm ever feeling down now and a bit fed up with football or a bit bored or a bit, you know, I put, a, I, I put one, a Dick dig bait masterclass on, um, mm-hmm. on YouTube, you know, and, and sit there and watch it and, nice. you know, uh, and after I've watched it, I want to get my boots out the cupboard and get back on the pitch again. You know, it's like, nice. Nice. it's like, you know, things like that. People like that, and and I feel I feel um, I feel blessed with the career that I've had. You know, I feel from a failed player to to work in the countries I've worked in, and the environments yeah. and the people I've I've worked with. Um, it's you. It really is something that you should never take for granted. You know. In, and it's changed, I think I said this to you. I mean, it's changed massively. It's changed, it's not as easy as it was when I first mm-hmm. started. Jobs are harder to get. There are so many fake CVs around, it's incredible. It's, I, it, I can imagine, I can imagine, yeah. Um, and, and there's still too much, um. I'll get you a job, but what's in it for me? You know, and, and you know, and, and to get a job now, people are quite prepared to pay the CEO, the general secretary, and and you know, and Uncle Tom Cobley, and mm. and that's that's spoilt the game a little bit. You know, it's definitely changed um, mm. the last few years. Um, but a great profession to be in, you know, and you, you've got to always got to remember that. I think yeah beautiful
1: Stuart thank you very much I really enjoyed that that was really really fascinating thank you viewers listeners don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button below and you can catch the next episode of our away from home series thank you again Stuart thank you very much
0: have a great day
1: and you cheers Podcast Network.